everybody. Welcome to episode 43 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina and also Tübingen, Germany, as Jerry T told me to say, uh, with <laughs> a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me as always is Collins Mullen. Hey, Collins. Hey, Chris. How's it going? You had a pretty exciting well. weekend last weekend. Yeah, yeah, pretty exciting. You know, I I spent like 10 days on the road traveling, went to Paris for Eternal Weekend, and then went to Birmingham for the double GP. So I'm finally at home recording alone in my apartment with a real microphone and nobody (laughs) slamming doors every two minutes. Yay! Um, So that's that's nice. That should at least make it easier on you. Well, no, I thought it was really sweet. For I mean, for those of you who don't know, last episode, uh, Chris recorded from what the the basement of a hostel in paris so that, yeah <laughs> that just sounds so like you're you're doing it you're traveling and and that's awesome right right play the game see the world yeah. uh spend a lot of money that sort of thing <laughs> yeah oh, right of course uh i guess before we really get started we should thank our new patrons so sam neal who I actually met this weekend at gp birmingham he's a listener and he's actually started his own podcast Oh, uh, the Hour of Devastation podcast, I think. Not a lot of uh, UK-based content creators out there, so kind of cool to see some people kind of picking up that slack, so I'm definitely going to mm-hmm. be tuning into that. Um, nice. And also Siler Potterdorf, which I don't know if that's a real name or not, but that's what it says on Patreon, so so thanks for joining Siler. <laughs> um, <laughs> Awesome. So yeah, thanks thanks a lot to our patrons. That's so helpful, and we we really appreciate all of the help. It's it's super cool to chat with you guys in Discord, and we're we're gonna do our best to um, start providing more potential uh, benefits. Looking into hats and perhaps Ooh. other things. So I'm down uh, we'll, for hats. I'll wear some hats for sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. So so we're getting on that yeah. but obviously you know if you aren't in a place to contribute financially just listening is awesome and we we appreciate the hell out of that as well so yeah i uh did gp birmingham this weekend it was super super fun like ran into a lot of people i mean the lotus box guys were there so it was really cool to hang out with with jj and and zan and and ralph that was very very awesome yeah definitely and some some of our our Scottish friends were there too, which was very helpful because I borrowed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars of cards from Alex Riley. So um, shout thanks, out to him, thanks then. Riley. Yeah. yeah, always helpful. Absolutely, <laughs> very very helpful. Uh, unfortunately, most of the cards I borrowed were for Legacy, and a lot of the practice time that I put in was for Legacy. Mm-hmm. And I had been practicing uh, with Turbo Depths. And yeah. slightly audibled, uh, based on our discussion, to the Jody Keith version with uh-huh. with Dark Confidants and Death Rite Shaman, which I should not have done. I immediately went just o three o six and oh, uh, no. dropped out of the tournament. Like I, and it, yeah. it, it, it it's not that I shouldn't have done it because the deck was bad or worse or anything like that. I, it's it's that I I shouldn't have done it because. And I'm, I, I've sort of learned this about myself before, but I think I really need to internalize it, is that, uh, number one, I'm not really a Magic player that can audible. I need to get reps in with a deck, and I need to really internalize, like, play patterns. Like, I'm a, I, I'm a pretty strong, intuitive player when it comes to limited formats and understanding the range of things my opponents can have in their hands. In constructed formats, I really, really need to be getting those reps in with a deck that's as close to the 75 as I end up playing in order to to really 
get the flow of the game and get that sort of unconscious, uh, you know, and also just to get my mechanics right. Like, I I punted several games in the six games that I played. So that was uh, pretty embarrassing. Yeah, not really where you want to be. Pretty bad. But, you know, Legacy is not my format. And I was used to playing Turbo Depths as, as like, a straight-up combo deck. And this build of it is really a mid-range deck with a combo kill in it. And yeah, yeah. honestly, playing mid-range in Legacy was just not something that I had practiced and was quite, quite difficult. I did a bad job of, like... Um, managing my opponent's graveyard with Deathrite Shaman in anticipation of Gurmag Anglers. Uh, I did a bad job of playing around Days. Just a lot of basic stuff that I I really should have practiced more going in. And and I have no one to blame but myself for that. But it was a very disappointing uh, Friday of the event. So, so that was tough. Yeah, well, uh, it's really good that you are like learning pretty important things about yourself as a magic player from that experience like you know i think that a lot of people would audible there have the same result that you did and come out of it saying oh you know you know either like complaining about variants or saying that they were sad about the deck that they you know audible to or whatever but it's really cool to hear you say you know these are like the specific things that i am learning about myself as a magic player and my testing process and really, you know, leaning into that as like, this is what I'm going to do better next time. Um, and this is what I'm going to try to avoid in the future in order to give myself the best opportunity to do well. So that's yeah. really cool. And fortunately, and I, I appreciate you saying that, I hope that I actually learn from this and, and, and make it part part of my approach to magic. Um, I think I kind of actually got the opportunity to, since it was a double GP weekend, uh, in the next tournament, kind of take that to heart a little bit. So Ooh, immediately, wow, that's really yeah, cool. yeah. Um, so on on Friday, I at three rounds, I initialed the drop box on the slip. I just could not <laughs> continue playing badly a format that I just don't really get yet. Um, I understand. I went and, played a draft so that I could remember like what it was like to be a competent magic player uh, and that actually helped a little bit and then I started trying to put together the cards for my standard deck but right before I did I ran into Jerry T who actually have never gotten to meet in person before despite being you know a pretty big I mean, who isn't, but I'm, you know, fan of his podcast, fan of his content. You know, he's kind of one of the reasons that that this podcast exists. I might not have, you know, I I don't know if we would have started it if we didn't feel like, oh, this is a thing that like other people can do. Why can't we do it? Um, And the the game podcast was definitely a big reason slash inspiration for this in the first place. So it was really cool to get to meet Jerry um, and just, you know, chatted about normal stuff. And like one thing that came up, you know, he he asked me what I was playing in standard. And I said, I think I'm going to play Snake. And he goes, ah, see, I was going to play Constructs. Like he has this green black Constructs deck that's similar to the Snake decks in that it has Snake in it and is kind of mid-rangey and snowballs with plus one, plus one counters. And he said, but there's just, there's so much black red. And I said, oh... I and you know I'd been traveling and stuff so I hadn't been doing as good of a job at keeping up with the metagame as as you like to do especially in a fast moving standard like this. Yeah. Um and, and you know we had recorded a podcast 2 days before when we talked about standard and black red is a deck that we barely mentioned. Right. So then I looked at like 
the game Discord and I looked at some of the Twitter discussion and stuff like that, and it was all about Black Red. Everybody was talking about this deck. Um, the the artifact-based Black Red deck with Unlicensed Disintegration to beat Lyra, uh, Heart of Kirin because it's great against all of the non-fatal push removal in the format, Karn because it's just really powerful, and then sort of a transformational sideboard plan where it can really slow itself down. So that deck has a very good matchup against Green Black. So that ended with me sitting in the lobby of my hostel, staring at a couple different piles of cards, like trying to figure out what the hell... I was going to do the next day and one of the options was to actually just play black red like i i would have needed to go buy like a play set of karns but other than that i <laughs> i literally had yeah ouch but not not like they're not going to see much use over the next two years right. uh you know but you know like i literally had the rest of the deck in front of me with the karns proxied like so i had like 72 of the 75 cards but then next to it was just snake and then I, I just thought about it and I thought, can I please, why don't I just try to internalize the lesson of the Legacy GP? And I have gotten no reps in with the Black Red deck. You know, I've, I've played an older version of it, but that didn't have Karn. It wasn't mm. running Heart of Kirin. Yeah. Uh, it was a, a very different deck. And I, I hadn't played it recently, but what I had played was the Snake decks. And I knew pretty well how to play that deck against most of the cards in the format. Um, I, I, I know how to play with Walking Ballista. I know how to build a sideboard for the deck specifically. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so I just, I just said, like, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's figure out how to make this deck work in this metagame, even if it's an unfriendly metagame. Um, and probably ended up taking the lessons of the Legacy GP a little too far to heart because now, like, looking back on the tournament, I would not recommend playing Snake in Standard at this moment. Uh-huh. Not even a little bit. Um, Is that because the like, tournament went uh, felt like pretty difficult for you? Um, it actually. So I mean, the tournament went okay. You know, I I went X and four uh, and squeaked into top sixty four. Uh, I went one and two against Black Red. Somehow lost to to Black White. Like the only match that I played against it, which was kind of the whole reason to play the deck. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know the the deck. Based on the meta that like I personally experienced, except for playing against Black Red several times, against pretty much everything else, I felt either favorable based on deck composition or favorable because my opponents didn't quite understand what the what my deck was capable of. Yeah, um, there were a lot of walking ballista turns that caught my opponents by surprise that ended in lethal damage. Uh, there were a lot of like flipping a Carnage Tyrant to Jade Light Ranger and my opponent's eyes getting really big and then them dying to that Carnage Tyrant <laughs> two, two turns nice, later. Nice. Yeah. So like, like the deck worked out better than it probably should have based upon an accurate read of the metagame. Um, the games against Black Red did feel very hard and the matches were all really close, uh, but I did come out you know, losing more than I won of those. And just beating that number of Glorybringers and Chandras and Abrades is tough for a deck like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Go- Goblin Chain Whirler, especially as a Lanoir Elves Glinsleaf Siphoner deck, is a huge, huge problem. Um, you know, like I made some changes to the deck going forward with Black Red in mind. I ran two Bristling Hydra's main deck, despite this being just the worst Bristling Hydra deck that has ever been built. Um <laughs> Just no energy except for no energy, (laughs) no energy. Yeah, no servant of the conduit, and I ended up 
developing like a 12 card sideboard plan against black red which involved taking out the best card in the deck so you would be proud of me nice it's my specialty (laughs) (laughs) like like the the sideboard plan involved taking out glintsley siphoners winding constrictors and some other cards against black red because uh they're just liabilities against goblin chain whirler but it was still very very hard and i don't know that it was it was right um, but you know what what worked out well that weekend was that I knew how to play the deck quite well. I saw lines that like when I had started playing the deck I would not have seen and those lines mostly led to wins uh, and and so rather than this tournament being based on a, a skill that I think I usually have, which is an accurate read of the metagame and uh, you know strong deck choice, it was more based on, very specific deck tweaks based on what I thought the metagame was going to be and just trying to play as tight as possible with a deck that I was pretty experienced with. And that's that's where my success came from this weekend rather than picking the right deck. Because because we've seen a right deck for each weekend, and this weekend it was black-red. I don't think I could yeah. have X4'd with black-red. Right. So, and it's interesting how those kind of like the, the two elements that you're, you're uh, talking about given your deck construction choice was like the conflict between having a good metagame read and playing what you know right mm-hmm. and i think that those are definitely two very real approaches to figuring out which deck you're going to play for a tournament but the problem comes up a lot that um, they're often at conflict with each other um, yeah. because you're it's very difficult to get a good metagame read and have that stay true for like the week that you're going to need in order to prepare heavily for a particular play for playing a particular deck right so you can have like the metagame read going into on monday or whatever you can have like a pretty good idea of what right now is really good but then the format especially with a fast moving format like standard it's going to evolve and change and adapt you know from between monday and the tournament so it's almost impossible to be able to get in all of the reps that you're going to need to do well uh, if, if you're a person who needs the reps and the experience to play a deck well, right? So it's interesting how those are so conflicting and sometimes you're going to need to sacrifice, you know, one of those elements in order to, you know, still be able to feel comfortable with, you know, the other element, right? If, you're, if you want to feel comfortable with your experience through their deck you're gonna end up sacrificing some metagame knowledge because you're making your decision much early in order to get the experience in and Mm -hmm. otherwise you're sacrificing your experience if you decide to switch to a new deck right yeah so i think that finding a balance there is pretty important but very difficult to do i guess i guess that's my two cents on that yeah one of the things that is helpful is if you can spend time playing lots of different decks so that it's not that hard to adjust to something new and then maybe get in an evening's worth of leagues before the tournament or something. But uh, when you're traveling and stuff, it just... Yeah, yeah right. It's, it's really sure. hard. Yeah, I mean, ideally, you can just pick up a deck and be able to play it well because you've played enough similar decks before. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, that takes a while to get to that point for anybody. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, my 
play I, I, it's not play style it's not even like an approach to the game but my suite of abilities does not include the ability to pick up and play a deck even if it's a few cards different uh mm-hmm. from from what i've practiced before i i'm going to miss things if i don't get in a, a decent number of matches with it i it's just very difficult for me to pick up a deck and play it yeah yeah that makes sense but yeah, I mean, still, like, the tournament went pretty well. Uh, you know, one of the things I did understand mostly what the expected metagame was going to be. After talking to Jerry and after talking to some other people, I knew, like, okay, black-red is the deck to play tomorrow. Uh, and it's going to be something that you need to address. So I made sure to try to pick a sideboard plan that I felt comfortable with against it. Um, I specifically put, you know, Carnage Tyrant in my sideboard, which was great all weekend long holy crap <laughs> nice um like if you're if you're playing green i want you to give a hard look to, at carnage tyrant uh just because the, of the the red black matchup yeah i i mean i brought it in against a lot of stuff i brought it in against uh any red deck of any stripe basically um uh-huh. whether it was I, I played against wizards once i played against straight up mono red once um and it was just very good it's very good against the hazard decks because it's got six toughness and hexproof. it's it's very good against the removal heavy mid-range decks whether that's like i played against a blue black deck and brought it in and it was just game over um and and same thing with the red based sort of mid-rangey decks that this black red deck is sort of the at the forefront of very very strong card right now and yeah like i just kind of made my individual card choices based on the meta game even though i knew that my core strategy was not necessarily what you what you would want to choose based on the metagame and even the version of the deck i I probably what i should have done if i could go back in time what i even if i knew that i had to play something like constrictor because i do have experience with it i probably should have chosen to play a sultai version and i might even at this point like cut the glint sleeve siphoners from the deck entirely because there were so many chain whirlers this weekend that yeah something like you know, as many Bristling Hydras as you can play, um, Hadana's Climb, so you can just try to kill them before their their big removal spells take over, something like that, uh, kind of appeals to me more right now in Standard. That makes sense. I can definitely see that. Um, and just, like, try to include some resiliency to uh, the the Chain Wheelers and stuff. Yeah. Yep. But... I don't. I think probably going forward, if you can avoid Snake until this black red deck is not like half of the top sixteen and <laughs> six six of the top eight decks. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it'll be interesting to find out what the next thing is going to be in standard because I, you know, I think that we've we've had very very defined best decks. Uh, in the past couple of standard weeks, or at least at the past couple of standard events, right? It was like very clearly blue-white control was the best deck for week one. And then very clearly black-white was the best deck for week two. And then very clearly for this tournament, it looks like red-black was the the good choice, right? So it'll be interesting to see if, you know, it, in whatever next event that's standard... And honestly, the next event that's standard might just be the Pro Tour. Is there something major before them? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, there. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that there's anything. I certainly don't have any like GPs coming up before then. Uh, I've got a standard one the week after the Pro Tour, but right, that's right. it. Yeah, right. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how, because uh, you know, people are going to notice that 
people are going to know that Red Black is the deck to beat probably going into that weekend, and it'll be interesting to see how many people just end up playing that or how many people try to beat it in some way or another. Yeah, and, and I think we would be dishonoring our duties if we didn't at least speculate on how to beat it for a minute or two before jumping into modern. So I don't know if you have any right. ideas there. Well, so before we jump right into that, I do want to comment on something I've noticed in standard in general, sure. where the successful standard decks right now are all, it feels like they all have some form of flexibility in terms of their game plan. So Absolutely. we saw this first with the white-black uh, aggro deck that I played in Baltimore, where we were trying to tackle the format, so we built a deck that was probably main deck configured to beat the blue-white control deck, which was the kind of like the, the deck to beat going into that weekend. But it also had very flexible plans, right? And we see this a lot with any Toolcraft Exemplar deck, where... A lot of the plans with your Toolcraft Exemplar deck is just to take all of your Toolcrafts and Scrap Heap Scroungers out of the deck and bring in more mid-rangey controlly cards like Fumigates and Settle the Wreckages and just like, you know, trying to go bigger, right? Mm-hmm. And that flexibility goes a long way in standard right now, I think, where you, if you're playing a linear deck that only has one game plan even post board like you have no flexibility to switch up your game plan and your opponent is playing a deck that does have that flexibility then your opponent is at such a advantage because they are going to be able to configure their deck in a way that they believe lines up well against whatever your strategy is if it's not flexible right so i think right. that a really big element of standard right now is that you need to be flexible. You, you need to have a flexible game plan because you need to be able to either be aggressive when that's appropriate and lines up well against what your opponent's doing or be more controlling or mid-rangey or whatever you want to call it if you believe that that is going to be what lines up well against your opponent. Uh, right, so I think that that is like kind of like a really fundamental part of what's happening in Standard right now. The, all of these decks have such good flexibility in terms of what their overall game plan is that that's pretty tough to tackle, right? Because you, you know, you normally we can look at like a metagame and be like, oh, look at all these ramp decks. All right, let's try to go under them or whatever. But it's so much more dynamic right now. And my instinct is telling me that if we're in a format with a bunch of, you know, dynamic strategies, which strategy is going to be the less abusable one to approach that? And it's probably just another dynamic deck, right? But I think that the most important games in these matches that play out with like transformational sideboards are definitely definitely going to be the post-sideboard games. And I think that it's it when you're approaching a format like this, it's more about understanding what role your opponent is going to be taking post-board than it is about like actually, you know, finding the quote unquote best archetype or deck to fight against them, right? So yeah. I think that people yeah. who have success moving forward in standard are going to be the people who are themselves playing a deck that is flexible in in the sideboarded games, but also these players are going to understand very well what their opponents are going to be doing against them, and then they're going to have a plan to counteract that in kind of real time or whatever. Yeah, for sure. I my uh, 
Like my sideboard plan from out of Snake, I was bringing in duresses. Uh, I had four duresses in my sideboard, and I was bringing them in against almost everybody. And it's not that I wanted them, like I didn't want them game one against Red Black with Bomat Courier and Scrap Heap Scrounger, but I definitely wanted it game two against Red Black with extra removal spells and more Planeswalkers. Yeah, so, absolutely. Like, like this is definitely a huge example of like board for the deck that your your opponent is going to be presenting in games two and three. Yeah. So I think that if we can, you know, if you can find a strategy that is both favored game one against red black, like say say our sole goal is to just beat up on red black. Um, sure. If we can find a strategy that is game one favored against red black and favored against what they're doing, you know, aggressively or whatever, that will kind of force them into transforming their deck into the bigger deck that they have access to because their game one plan was so bad. And then if you can have your your post-board configurations be good against what they are trying to do post-board, and you can that can either be you're going bigger than what they're trying to do, or you know I could even see a world where you're trying to go under what they're trying to do post-board, but as long as you like recognize that they are going to be a different deck post board and adapt for that and try to give yourself like uh, higher win percentages both in game ones and in post board, then mm-hmm. I think that that's going to be the best way to approach that. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, and and one of the keys too is like identifying the cards that overlap in effectiveness between games one and two. Um, and, and right now, kind of the cards that I really, really like for both parts of that matchup are Fatal Push and Vraska's Contempt. So I'm wondering, because, you know, even post-board, even after they've taken out all their aggressive stuff, they still have Heart, Heart of Kieran, which is the best Fatal Push target you could ever hope for. And and their Planeswalker and Glorybringer heavy, pretty much regardless of when you're playing against them. So I'm wondering, and I, I was chatting about this with Zan, because the, the Lotus Box guys... Minus Collins, unfortunately, uh, we're at the GP this weekend. They're they're um, cool and, people to hang out with for sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I actually, you know, got to get food with them and, and go out uh, for uh, you know post tournament activities and stuff. It was it was super awesome. Really good to see those guys. And we were talking about maybe it's time to go back towards you know blue white control is not the deck to fight this red black control deck with. It's just got too many weaknesses. Settle and, and fumigate are not going to answer what they're doing. Um, and maybe, you know, going back towards, you know, a blue-black deck, maximizing Scarab Gods with Vras- or maximizing Torrential Gearhulks with Vraska's Contempts, uh, that tends to match up against a lot of what they're doing. Just scary to have to play against Teferi with that deck. Yeah, right. For sure. So yeah, Standard is a tough puzzle to solve, and it is moving fast. Just yeah, incredibly right. quickly. Yeah. And I'm, I, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, on Magic Online, kind of behind the scenes... You know, we go through like one or two rotations of it before the the, the pro tour. I think that you know that's not an, an unreasonable thing to happen. Yeah, generally the big like rotations of popularity come from event results. So if there aren't yeah. any really like that, then you know I could see red black still being the deck to beat going into the pro tour. And you know who knows if uh, that'll be the actual case. Uh, Right after that, right because it's it's a matter of visibility and it's it's very difficult to see what's going on on Magic Online just from these dumps of five O lists. Like even if there are trends, they could be completely disguised and we could get the same decks every time. So yeah, tough to see. Yeah, so it'll be interesting. Definitely, definitely. Standard is standard is sweet. 
but it's very scary. Right. Yeah. Is there is there more that we want to talk about standard, or are we ready to move on? No, to I think modern? I think we probably should move on so we can give modern its due. We haven't talked mm-hmm. about it in a while, and I definitely want to make sure to to really really dig into it as much as we can. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I haven't gotten much time to actually play it. I've you know watched a little bit of streams, and I've I've tried to pay attention to as many deck lists and articles as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know you are prepping for modern, so I am prepping wanna... for modern. Yeah. And yeah. So. So this discussion on modern might actually be also a large part of discussion on me trying to pay attention to my personal psychology of deck selection a little bit. Okay, interesting. Um, what do you mean? So by bear that? with me on this. <laughs> yeah, because we, when you're talking about how you're noticing that you know about yourself that you need to have like experience and reps with a deck in order to, you know, in order to have success or whatever. Yeah, uh, I love I love thinking about stuff like that. Stuff like the psychology of like understanding what works for us, and I've been kind of diving into some a few concepts for myself personally on what really works for me when playing Magic and and, and trying to do well and everything. And one trend that I've noticed, and the scary part is that this might just be entirely variance, but I think that I've come up with like a uh, um, explanation for it is that a majority of my five O's on Magic Online actually come from me playing a deck for the first time. Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah, and that always kind of felt pretty crazy to me, and I was wondering why that was the case because that seems so counterintuitive, right? Like I'll load up a deck that I've never played before in Magic Online, and it feels like a mass majority of the time I five O the first league that I play with it. And then all of my records from then on out with leagues playing that deck actually get worse. Like I'll, you know, 3-2 and then I'll 4-1 and then something else. But why is it that such a high percentage of the time I'm able to do so well just playing my first league with a deck? That doesn't make any sense to me. So I started thinking about it because, you know, this is kind of always something that I've been thinking about lately, but the sample size was so small that I was like, okay, maybe it's just variance. I mean, I'm probably just getting beginner's luck or whatever with with these decks, but it's it, it kept on happening recently. Like even like this past weekend, I like played a few different decks and like five of the first league, and I was like, oh whoa, this deck is really good. And then you know played more, and then you know my results went down or whatever. But the thing that I started really thinking about is that I think that when I play for a deck for the first time, I really really try to focus on all of the decision points and when i'm playing a deck for the first time you know in each specific scenario where i see like different like you know branches of lines or whatever um i'm spending more time and i'm thinking more critically to try to analyze and figure out which of these lines is going to be better Mm -hmm. and something that happens when i played a deck for a long time is that i have in the past seen similar scenarios and then I kind of like just like default to what I what my experience is telling me, and I probably give up some equity by not actually trying to analyze the scenarios as carefully as I had in the past. So it's like it's almost like I'm trying harder when I play a deck for the first time, right? Because sure. I don't have I don't have like the crutch of like oh okay you know do this do this do this and it'll be fine, right? And so it's like the challenge of playing a new deck makes me play better in some way 
That's interesting. Do you think that carries over, like, like into your live tournaments? Do you think you are still losing equity because you're you're you know proceeding across along your well worn lines, or do you think that you are able to like reengage and and take that like need to make every decision individually sort of well, thing when you're playing live? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about specifically me playing humans, right? Mm-hmm. I've been doing fine with humans lately, but I've been losing a lot more with humans on both on Magic Online and in paper uh, more recently. And I think that a large factor of that is definitely going to be people are just more experienced against the deck, right? People know how to play against definitely. it or whatever. But I'm also noticing that I'm making more mistakes with humans recently than I have in the past. And I think that a lot of that is because I have this false sense of security, I think, with humans. I did so much winning with it initially that I'm like, now I'm like keeping bad hands because I just like assume that they'll work out because they have for me in the past or whatever. Sure. But when I'm when I first started playing humans, like the first three tournaments that I played with humans, I didn't lose a match, right? <laughs> uh, and I think a large part of that would have was uh, I was playing this new deck and focusing so much harder than I am focusing recently. It's like the mental state that I was uh, I, that I allowed myself to put myself in was just you know a little sharper, a little more focused. I was trying to analyze what I was doing, and but now uh, I just kind of like you know I I have this false sense of security, and I I actually talked to, to Jonathan Rossum about this a little bit because he feels the same way about humans is that he's making more mistakes recently with humans because he just like he he's putting less effort into it because he's had a lot of success with the deck in the past. And now more recently, he's just, you know, he feels like he's not playing it as well as he has. So anyways, the whole reason I went into this whole spiel about me trying to pay attention to what works for me or whatever is because this upcoming weekend, I want to play a deck that's going to be challenging for me. Sure. Um, and Grixis Death Shadow is a deck that I think is really underrepresented right now in the metagame. And a lot of that is because it's traditionally had a pretty bad matchup against humans. And humans is everywhere right now. Um, yeah. Right, I was going to ask, because you had, you had posted asking to borrow the deck, and I was, yeah. I was really going to be like, Collins, what, what are we doing here? So yeah, yeah. I definitely want to... Like, like, that start of the explanation makes sense, but I'm wondering how much you know, deeper we're going to go here. Right. Well, okay. So, um, so yeah. So the the Grixis Death Shadow deck is a deck that I know that hasn't done really well recently, and I think that a large part of that was that the matchup was not good against humans. But Dylan Donegan has had a lot of success with Grixis Death Shadow, even in a humans format. And I think that a large part of that is just because Dylan knows the deck very, very well, and uh, you know knows how to approach the matchup against humans and. Uh, is has just had phenomenal success with it because the Grixis yeah. Death Shadow really, really rewards like really tight play, um, and it's just a deck that I actually don't recommend that a lot of people pick up right off the bat without without a lot of experience, just because mm-hmm. uh, the margin for error with the deck is is so small that you you know you need to be super super focused and uh, like understanding everything that's going on in order to be able to pilot it well because you can just get so easily punished by this tiniest of mistakes like you cycled your street wraith too early or you fetched the wrong land or there's just like so many 
minute decisions to be made. Yeah, definitely. In order to be able to pilot it well. And I think that... Well, when your spells are so cheap, you just have so many, you know... The number of decisions you have to make are insane. Yeah, it's crazy. So, and I think that, honestly, one of the reasons that Grixis Shadow went down in popularity is because it was the quote-unquote best deck for a while. And I think that made a lot of people pick it up. But I think that a lot Mm -hmm. of people picked it up and did not have success with it because it's such a difficult deck to play with that they just kind of like dropped it and that was part of what made the deck drop off in popularity um in addition to it having a pretty you know a a traditionally bad matchup against humans but i'll talk about that later because i think that we've probably solved that for the most part interesting that's that seems very important to talk about and that seems very important to do if you're going to be playing that that deck this oh for sure for sure right so anyways kind of the reason i went into the whole thing with that is that because Crixus Death Shadow is so punishing and so important to play optimally, I think mm-hmm. that it's going to help me play my best. Because I'm going to be focused more on making sure that I'm making the right lines at every decision point, and uh, I'm not going to be able to just kind of like, you know, fall back into my false sense of security with playing humans or whatever. Yeah, um, interesting. So this is a very introspective episode we've got going so far. <laughs> I love it. I love stuff like this. Yeah, um, definitely. So, so yeah. So that's that's why I'm. I've decided that I'm going to play Shadow this weekend. I don't. It's it's not something. It's not like a metagame call, really. It's not something that I'm going to go out and tell everybody that you should be playing Great Success Shadow this weekend. But it's just you know, it's what I want to do for for the reasons that I've kind of laid out a little bit here. I think that. Uh, you get a lot of equity in modern by playing a deck that is less represented because you know that everybody is going to be focused on either playing humans or playing to beat humans this weekend. And that's just not really a place that I want to play humans on top of the fact that I just don't think that I've been playing humans as well as I have recently, which is kind of like an interesting psychological thing. Also kind of a spinoff on that is that I actually think that the best like the most focused I am playing magic is actually when I'm coaching, when I'm talking through lines uh, with somebody else, I tend to get super, super focused because I want to be able to make sure that I'm, you know, uh, helping the person I'm working with as much as I can. So I focus more on making sure that I talk about the best lines and the reasons why they're the best lines to help the my client understand really what's going on um yeah so that's kind of like something i've noticed a lot recently as well is that when i'm coaching i'm like really turned on to tuned into what's really important and i'm able to like you know give you know help help my client see kind of like the reasons why things are the way they are or whatever so that's kind of been like a, a, a fun little journey for me recently. <laughs> I, I, I completely understand. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a little removed from like that super tight technical play idea. But I mean, you know, I think doing this podcast, this is our 43rd episode now. I, I think like I am I, I am playing at a much higher level than I probably ever have before um and especially with regards to understanding metagames and understanding individual sideboard construction decisions and stuff like that because we talk about it every week and we're forced to justify our assumptions and our opinions Mm -hmm. and stuff to the people when you're yeah (laughs) yeah and and 
And, and that that just like makes such a huge difference rather than just like thinking a thing and letting it go unquestioned. If you know, I don't want to say something without backing it up on here. And so that forces me to to analyze a little deeper. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of uh, a lot of the things that have been on my mind lately, just in terms of magic in general and, you know, and particularly, you know, what I what I want to play in, you know, in modern this weekend and everything. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm I'm, going to trust my instincts on this one and just like, you know, trust that that's the right thing for me to do this weekend. Um, right, but not not definitely not saying to everybody like, "Hey, go play two yeah. leagues with with Grixis Death right. Shadow and then bring it to the open." Yeah, and just you know, and I don't know. It feels like a little elitist for me to say something like that, but it's the reality is that Grixis Death Shadow is just it's it's impossible to play appropriately, and I know that I'm going to make so many mistakes this weekend, but I'm also mm-hmm. embracing that, and I I think that it's going to be a challenge for me to really really focus in on you know playing it well and one thing that i i'm lucky to have is the resource of dylan in teaching me how to play the deck well because you know he he's he's one of the original grixis bros right so he he knows the deck probably better (laughs) than anybody else that i know and so I'm, i'm lucky to have that resource to be able to kind of like help me figure things out and everything um yeah so that is very helpful yeah um just to back up a little bit and talk about like what is the kind of current metagame uh, and trends yeah, so that have, like, led you <laughs> led you to make this decision, and then and then we should definitely talk yeah. about like what your because, because you know Grixis is traditionally kind of rough against humans. Like Reflector Mage mm-hmm. is just extremely powerful against cards like Gurmag Angler, and and flying creatures are really powerful against a deck that that rockets its own life total down to five or six. So. Uh, you know the metagame that that we've been looking at is definitely like humans is the most represented deck in the format and and has been for weeks now if not you know over a month uh yeah you know the, the it's the number one deck in the format and it's definitely the the biggest threat it's still modern so it's not going to be more than 10 percent of the metagame at most but you're if you want to win the tournament you have to be able to beat humans and then probably you know, to a lesser extent, we've also got Hollow One, and then to a slightly lesser extent than that, I think, um, we've also got Affinity, which may be boosted a little bit, because I think it's correct to have Karns in the sideboard, and I think they make the deck significantly better, or even in the main deck. But, you know, we're in a weird spot in Modern, where, like, the three biggest decks are all just straight-up aggro decks. Um, you know, Humans has a little bit of disruption, but really, they're trying to kill you as fast as possible with creatures. Um, and unfortunately for the more reactive players among us, those creatures all die to completely different removal spells. So this yeah. is kind of a tough format to uh, to to just say, like, here are the cards in the deck that you want to play right now. It's it's very difficult to, to break it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. He, yeah, it feels like the format has rotated. I always talk about the this the the modern metagame cycle and the mm-hmm. like the macro archetypes that make up the the metagame wheel in modern and yeah. there are four major archetypes there's like disruptive aggro which is like humans and i think that hollow one and affinity fit into the aggro archetype there's big mana decks like tron and scapeshift there are fair decks and these are like the control decks as well it's like you know jeskai control and jund and all this other stuff and then there are the combo decks and 
these archetypes have like specific matchups against these like macro archetypes have specific matchups that are favored for them right mm -hmm. so disruptive aggro beats combo combo beats the big mana decks the big mana decks beat the fair decks and the fair decks beat the disruptive aggro decks and which of those archetypes is the most popular kind of like rotates season to season i guess in modern and right now we are pretty solidly right in the middle of disruptive aggro being the dominant force of modern humans is everywhere hollow one is the second most popular deck it feels like affinity is really up there right now all these aggro decks are like the decks to beat or whatever and there are there are a lot of factors into why that's the case or whatever but it's definitely important to recognize that this particular weekend it is probably going to be bad time to play combo it feels like because you know humans is everywhere and humans typically praise on the combo decks so you mm -hmm. can still play your combo deck, but you just need to make sure that you're prepared for your humans matchup. So I've actually seen like some ad nauseum decks doing pretty well recently because they just like have like a good like plan for like bringing in a lot of sweepers and like you know being able to answer the humans disruptive elements. And uh, the best storm players right now, um, you know, Caleb Shearer comes to mind. He has like a really good understanding of how the humans matchup plays out, and I think that he is actually pretty favored post board in the humans matchup with Storm, even though traditionally that's like a nightmare matchup, just because he he like has a good plan. So if you're gonna oh, play a combo deck, you can still do that. You just have to have like a pretty solid plan against these decks. Yeah. Um, but it in helps, general, it helps I, if it's your combo deck and you're very aware of like what your sideboard options are yes, and, and yeah, what you yeah. want your build to be. For sure. Um, but I think that it might even be a pretty good weekend to be playing a fair deck because the fair mm -hmm. decks are going to be well positioned against the more popular decks right now. Like I think that Jeskai Control is actually in a pretty good spot right now, and you know we've been looking at blue white miracles a little bit, and you know I think that Abzan is actually pretty good right now. Um, sure. I'm specifically not mentioning Jund because. Uh, my hot take right now is that Jund is just bad. <laughs> I think you just can't cast Bloodbraid Elf. You can't afford for that to be your game plan against these right. decks right now. Yeah. Uh, I think that Jund in its current form is just not good and needs to go through some... I think it, it the, the composition of the deck needs to change pretty drastically in order for it to uh, actually have success. It's Jund, is, Jund has been popular recently, but I think that there are many reasons why a deck can be popular in modern and one of those reasons is that there are enough people that just simply want to play that deck and i think that there are definitely a lot of people who want to play that deck because bloodbraid got unbanned recently and you know they're excited about that so they want to play nostalgic jund and they're going to do that because they're the jund player right yeah. and that's that can be a force that makes a deck popular and can even push it into the the more popular archetypes but I think that the other force which can make a deck popular, which is the deck is just good. Jun, I just don't think has that right now. I don't, I don't really like the builds of Jun right now. I think that you know Thoughtseize into Tarmogoyf just really isn't good enough to compete with what's going on in Modern right now. Um, yeah, and the the removal suite is just pretty much impossible to adapt to being prepared for all three aggro decks. Just like. Yeah, you can't really have a combination of like lightning bolt, abrupt decay, fatal push, maelstrom pulse that like works against the incredibly cheap 
creatures in uh, in Affinity or the disruptive elements of humans, and also kills five five Gurmag Angler and four four Hollow One out of and and deals with like Phoenix out of out of like that that just Jund colors aren't quite prepared for all of those things at once. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Whereas if you have white in your deck and can cast Path to Exile, then you're you've got like a really huge head start on on solving all of those problems. Right. So I think that a a really good mid range deck right now is actually just like old traditional uh, Abzan with like Lingering Souls and Path to Exiles because that deck is just a little it's like leaner than the uh, the Bloodbraid Elf decks that people are trying to play right now in Jund. Mm-hmm. So I think that, like, you know, Abzan's leaner, it's not trying to cascade, you know, the spells that it's casting are more efficient, um, but it still has the, like, the removal spells into, you know, Lingering Souls and, and like, decent-sized threats or whatever that yeah. can be good against uh, the, you know, the fair decks right now. Or, sorry, the, um, the, the, the aggro decks. decks right now. Yep. Yeah, and, and Lingering Souls lets you play a, a strong game against the fair decks as well. I, yeah, I'm a... Yeah. And the fair decks are the ones that are benefiting from this aggressive deck meta. So that I, I definitely th- th- this does sound like a solid plan to me. Right. Um, so yeah, that's definitely one of the one of the other decks that I think could be pretty good. And you know, and I think that you're also probably in a fine spot if you're playing a big mana deck. the The interesting thing about the the metagame wheel in modern is that the decks that are opposite each other. So decks like aggro and big mana and fair decks and combo decks, mm-hmm. um, their matchups against each other are generally pretty close. Like I wouldn't say that like the big mana decks are terribly favored or unfavored against the aggro decks of the format right now. I think it's like you know, like you know, if you talk about like very specific matchups, then it can be skewed one way or the other. For example, sure. I think the affinity is very very good against Tron, but I think that Tron and humans are pretty closely matched. I think that um, like affinity and scapeshift is pretty closely matched. Uh, I think that scapeshift and humans is pretty closely matched. So you know, kind of for the same reason that like storm and jund are pretty closely matched. I think. Mm-hmm. So that like you know, if you're if you want to play like a big mana deck, I think that that could also be like a pretty decent weekend for that because you're going to be at least fifty fifty most of the time against the general uh, like the 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 deck that's the most popular right now, which is the uh, the aggro decks and stuff, and you can you even have the benefit of being able to beat up on the fair decks that you might expect people to bring. So that that could be that could be a fine choice for for this weekend in modern right now. Yeah, and I I think just as an individual card, I'm a pretty huge fan of uh, the full on sweepers of damnation, uh, wrath of god, supreme verdict right now. Like the yeah. ability to cast those is is pretty valuable at this moment. Yeah, it definitely feels that way. So, so yeah, I um, that's kind of my thoughts on really what's going on in modern right now. I am approaching it from kind of like a weird, different angle, <laughs> a little bit. Uh-huh. I'm playing Grixis at Shadow. How? What is your plan against humans then? Out of Grixis, like, how are we positioning Grixis Death Shadow in this metagame to be something that you're comfortable playing? So essentially, essentially, the sideboard is really stacked against any of these like the any of these aggro decks right so so essentially the sideboard just has a lot of options for competing well with the with the aggro decks we're playing two anger of the gods two 
Grim Lava Mancers, additional rule spells, engineered explosives. Uh, we just have a ton of tools that we have access to post-board that can really turn the turn the matchup around. I'm, I'm running an additional Teamer Battle Rage, which is always insane in like the aggro matchups where you know, if they get you down to a low life total, they're just going to die if you have a Death Shadow out and a Teamer Battle Rage. And Teamer Battle Rage has been easily one of the best cards for me against uh, both humans and Affinity and a bunch of other stuff. It just lets you punch through uh, so well and just like win games that would otherwise be completely unwinnable. So I really like that as an option right now. And like going up on an additional copy of that, I think it's just like a hedge against the, the decks that were kind of getting ready to face. But in general, just like the, the mass removal spells, I think are gonna go a long way, like the engineered explosives and the anger of the gods. And, you know, Grimlava Mancer also kind of, like, fits into that. There are a lot of draws that Humans has where if you just, like, lead off on a Grimlava Mancer, they just can't can't win, <laughs> which is pretty pretty good <laughs> spot to be in. You yeah, know, so, yeah, definitely. Right, and just kind of, you know, it Reflector Mage is definitely really good against you, but, you know, if you want to, like, trim on Gurmag Angler's post board, you can do that and just kind of, like, rely more on, like, a control plan and just like you know, you'll find a threat eventually, and and should be able to kill them with it, just because they don't you know run a ton of actual removal spells. So that yeah, that's kind of been the the general idea of how we're configuring uh, our shadow deck against humans. I, yeah, I think that that'll be I think that'll be a a, a fine matchup for me post board, just because I I understand how everything plays out really well, and I should be able to utilize that. So yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense, and and. You know, one of the reasons that Death Shadow kind of disappeared from the scene a little bit was... I mean, it when it first exploded, people didn't really know how to play against it. And people would die all the time when they weren't expecting to, or they just, like, didn't... weren't used to managing, like, both players' life totals in a way that uh, made the game work. And then as time went on, people got much better at playing against Death Shadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and some of that you know, knowledge is certainly going to stick around, especially in a lot of the better players. But, you know, in players that haven't been playing against it that much recently, then you might retain some of that edge that the deck had before. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is definitely, you know, part of, you know, my excitement to play the deck is that I think that, right, people in at least their deck construction is not going to be prepared for Death Shadow as much. You know, maybe in... You know, maybe in their play style or whatever, the more experienced players are still going to kind of like understand a little more. But uh, I think that you know, the the deck construction used to be very very hostile towards Death Shadow, but I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that Death Shadow mm-hmm. is definitely gone. You know, and I'm I'm not even worried about talking about it on the podcast because it's you know it's just me and Dylan probably, so it's not like anybody listening should be incentivized to really stock up on Death Shadow stuff because I, I know <laughs> a bunch of popular, celestial but... purges. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if you really want to beat me this weekend, then now you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably so. probably not high EV on that particular <laughs> decision. Right. Um Yeah, I if I had a modern tournament this weekend, I'm gonna be honest, I would go in a completely different direction in attacking this metagame. Okay. Uh, and I think I would just straight up play Boggles. Um, oh yeah, right. So that's that's definitely another deck that exists, kind of outside of the um, the traditional cycle of metagames or whatever. It's just a deck that beats up on a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, it, yeah. Basically, Boggles is good against the decks that Daybreak Coronet makes it difficult for them to win the game. And yeah. that includes the aggro decks in the format. That includes the mid-range decks in the format. It does not include uh, if, if people do show up with Tron or, you know, big mana decks of that sort. But right now, I think showing up with Tron is a little bit of suicide. So uh, I, I would be pretty hard-pressed to not choose to play Boggles this weekend if I were headed to the Open. I mean, just my two cents, but... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely think that it's going to be an excellent choice for this weekend, for sure. And I think that, yeah, because it's, it's pretty favored against, it feels like, all of the aggro decks of the format. Um, mm-hmm. It's also pretty favored against, you know, all of the fair decks, for sure, that, you know, aren't specifically prepared for boggles. It can definitely suffer against the combo and the, uh, the big mana <laughs> yeah. decks. But those Just are the decks bit. that I recommend that you don't play this weekend, so Boggles feels like it's probably in an excellent spot, for sure. Yeah. Well, I would not be leveraging that that whole, hey, let's play a deck that has a bunch of interesting decision points in order to force myself to engage with the game in a way that I haven't been with, with these decks I'm comfortable with. I don't think that uh, Boggles quite engages you on that metric in the same way as uh, Grixis Death Shadow. Right. Well, so, I mean, yeah, that's Boggles is definitely one of the decks that you can get sloppy with. It doesn't mean that it doesn't require a lot of skill, but it, it also means right. that you you can definitely have a, a false sense of security playing that deck, I think. But the the major decision points in in that deck is are the mulligan decisions. If you are mulliganing appropriately, I think that you are going to have a lot of success with, with the deck. Um, but I think that a lot of people either keep hands that are not good enough on 7, or they just, like for whatever reason, don't mulligan aggressively enough to into a hand that's going to be super powerful. Because the thing about Bogles is that you can just win with 4 cards. It, you know, As long as you have your, you know your hexproof guy and you know lands to cast it and enchantments you're probably gonna win depending on the matchup so i think that a lot of people are like afraid they like see a hand that like might try to get there on six cards or whatever but you should just you should just be mulliganing into a a powerful hand on on its own feels like right right Um, definitely and by powerful hand that mostly just means like have a hexproof guy in it because you'll get there otherwise (laughs) But yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, but even then, you know, if you if your hand is like, uh, if your seven is like three lands, and like two or three dorks, and sure, like sure. you know one enchantment or whatever, I I might even consider mulliganing that because that those hands, when you're playing just like a bunch of one ones and you make one of them a two two, that's just not where you, where you want to be. So I would you know there 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 are definitely some like unintuitive things that I would you know I would recommend for. Somebody who's trying to play boggles and trying to think about mulliganing or whatever. Yeah. The other way that I've seen people lose games that they shouldn't with boggles is by, like, forgetting that post-sideboard your opponent can interact with you. You feel invincible because your creatures have hexproof and, like, you're playing against Jund, and then you get your your Hyena Umbra Maelstrom Pulsed and your Daybreak Coronet falls off your guy, and all of a sudden you're not winning a race anymore. Right, right, right. You need... More important than, you know, sequencing your cards exactly the most efficient way is remembering what your opponent can do to you and making sure that they don't, you know, get the one combination. You don't run into the combination of cards that can actually beat you in a very favorable matchup. Yeah. Yeah, Boggles definitely feels like one of those decks where 
it's actually in your benefit to go really far out of your way to play around the things that your opponent can get you with. So I've seen a lot of people playing Bogos like really, really go out of their way to make sure that they will never lose to Liliana. And uh, that makes sense because that's like the only way that they can lose that matchup, at least in game one, right? So they're willing mm-hmm. to wait like several turns before like really going in on something until they feel like they're protected from a Liliana. And they'll like have a fetch land up that can fetch the Dryad Arbor like all game until their opponent just dies to their big thing because their opponent had never really had a chance to um, to get them with like, you know, one of the few things that they have. Right. So I think right. that you're pretty incentivized, especially with that deck, to really go out of your way to play around the few things that can get you because you're going to win otherwise. Like if they don't have it, you're going to win and you're not really giving up that much equity. So, yep. um, and that's, that's the philosophy in deck construction too. Like that's how Leyline of Sanctity gets added to the main deck is right, that right. for a lot of decks, there's a couple of ways that you lose the game. And this, while it's a pretty big sacrifice to put a bunch of ley lines in your deck in the starting 60, like that's just going out of your way to play around the cards that actually affect you. And yeah, you, you're totally right. Take that into play in your gameplay as well with a deck like this. For sure. For sure. So yeah, I think that's my, my two cents on Boggles. I think it'll definitely be a, a decent choice for this weekend. Um, mm-hmm. So if you are trying to meta game, uh, I think that that's just probably one of the one of the better options. Yeah, I don't think you can go too far wrong with it. Although you might, you know, hate playing it, and that's kind of understandable. <laughs> but yeah, but we're yeah. here to win for sure. Always here to win. <laughs> um, let me see. I think that I noted a couple of deck lists from the five O list that were just particularly interesting. Um, okay. So I I want to make sure to at least point those out. One thing is that there were a number of different chord or company or eldritch evolution you know some combination of those tutory green cards yeah uh, but yeah. there were a bunch of different green decks in this last batch of 5-0 lists so th- those are usually not decks that i'm particularly interested in playing but it's definitely something to note that these super value engine sort of decks are um th- there's a lot of different builds of them it's hard to tell if they're doing particularly well but there's a lot of different builds that are capable of 5-0ing which may sort of indicate that this strategy is okay right now yeah i mean one of the decks that i considered for a minute was a uh so like i think the green white value town is actually in a fine spot and mm-hmm. going a step further i think that putting the devoted druid combo into green white value town is something that i've seen people do And I really like that as an option right now because the Devoted Druid plan is really good actually against the aggro decks of the format. And then the rest of your deck is just like this Tireless Tracker, Knight of Reliquary, value-oriented deck. Just a nightmare for for Jun decks or anything like that. And, you know, kind of like going back to what we talked about for Standard, having that flexible game plan can really, really go a long way in a world where people are trying to do one linear strategy, right? Because post-board, that deck, you can just, like, take out all the combo pieces and bring in all the value pieces for uh, your fair matchups, or you can, like, really trim down on the value pieces and go all in on your combo pieces against, like, the, the aggro decks, right? So so that's a strategy that I've actually considered a lot recently as something that could be really good in the metagame right now. And that, I think that that also kind of applies to a lot of core decks. Core decks are generally really flexible in terms of what they can do. So sure. I can see them having success right now. 
Yeah, and one of them, at least, I, I didn't check to see more, but at least one of them had a shalai in it to cord for. So, you know. Shalai, gonna... yeah. Shalai, yeah. honestly, in any in any cord calling deck that has white in it, shalai should just be in there. It's yeah. just such a powerful effect. Like, you know, giving yourself hexproof in response to Grape Shot or, like, Valakuliana or whatever. Yeah. It seems just yeah. so powerful. Like, you know... Cord in response to a bunch of Valkyrie triggers after escape shift or something seems like it could be game over pretty pretty easily there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't see like how general you don't you don't win from there. And and you know if you know it's better in the decks that do have the combo in it because it's just one more place to sink that mana. But yeah, I, I think it just it, it gives a a pretty powerful dimension to these decks. So I'm just gonna put a little smug emoticon there for calling that and yeah and uh, July. <laughs> For sure. Um, one other list that I saw was, and I'm not I'm not mentioning this in order to recommend it to anybody to play this weekend, but it was a Soul Sisters deck with four main deck ghostly prisons in it. And if you just want to beat the aggro decks, you know this is a list that can do it. And I I think that's more just showing that like yeah these decks are taking up a lot of the metagame online if you are if if you're able to take a soul sisters deck in 5-0 that means that you mostly ran into decks like affinity hollow one humans that don't really have a way to answer that and then just the types of of spells that it's playing are really good a, a lot of removal spells a lot of traditional answers to aggro don't hit all three of these decks but Path to Exile, Life Gain, Massive Life Gain in the case of Soul Sisters, and Ghostly Prison actually do a pretty good job against all three of the decks. So that's kind of an interesting angle of attack. Yeah, Ghostly Prison right now feels like a pretty big house against humans, Hollow One, Affinity, all those things. Yeah, as long as you have a way to answer, like, the giant threat. I mean, like, if you play Ghostly Prison against Affinity and don't have a way of answering just cranial plating on a flyer, like, that that didn't do anything. Right, right, right. Um, so you need to, or if you go Ghostly Prison and then you don't have a way to stop Gurmag Angler from just killing you in three more turns. Um, but as long as you're aware of those angles of attack, then yeah, Ghostly Prison does shut down a, a pretty big portion of, of the plans of those decks. Definitely, definitely. And finally, so this is Barnyard's blue-black Eldrazi control list with like a bunch of the old like Innistrad standard... Uh, mainstays of Mana Leak for four Forbidden Alchemy, three Think Twice, and it's got Planeswalkers and three All Is Dust and two Damnations. I mean, this deck looks sweet at four Drowner of Hope. I don't really Look, understand how this deck cannot die to most things, but it is sweet. I mean, you got Damnation, All Is Dust, uh, yeah. you know, you got some things, Fatal Push, Cast Down. Any look, any deck that plays Emrakul the Promised End is is all right in my in my book. So uh, that that's pretty awesome. I I think that card's yeah. sweet. Yeah, but this yeah that's true. This deck is playing two cast downs, and cast down is definitely a card that enables like blue black and and maybe like Sultai decks to have that more of a catch all removal spell. Um, so that's pretty cool to see. If nothing else, that's a decent takeaway here. Right, right. But yeah, just some things that I wanted to like note even if they're not like particularly important for the the meta at large just some interesting things um for sure but yeah you got anything else to say about modern uh anything else to say about the tournament this weekend or whatever? um i think i said pretty much my piece on that the 
yeah, just kind of like my philosophy going into the weekend for me personally. Uh, just, you know, I'm, I'm trying to explore what really, you know, what really is going to help me play the best that I can play. Um, just kind of like from a psychological standpoint. So that's, that's kind of like my own personal journey that I'm going on to, but you know, that's, that's more, I guess, me oriented than, uh, than me trying to like, you know, teach the world what's actually best in modern. But you know, if, uh, I hope that my story is interesting to people and can, you know, maybe help them take a look introspectively on, you know, what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, our goal is not to, to give people the best deck for this weekend. I think that's like kind of a ludicrous and, and short-sighted goal to have. I, I, but what we want to do here is try to impart almost everything that we've we've learned about trying to be good at magic, and understanding yourself is a huge part of that. Yeah. So so yeah. So hopefully that's interesting for people. I've been pretty fascinated by it all recently, so that's that's good. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to hear about it. So I definitely want to see how this weekend goes and and how it works out for sure. Yeah. Let's do cool. it. Um, but yeah, I think that's uh, that's what I got at the moment. Yeah, I don't really have anything else. So uh, thanks again to our patrons. Uh, thank you so much for supporting us. And for everybody else, thank you so much for listening. Oh, you know what? Actually, I, I keep forgetting to mention that, like, like I, I need to be writing this in the show notes, but we should be mentioning each episode that you do offer coaching. Okay. Um, sure. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, and, and if anybody is looking for some more personal, like, one-on-one coaching time, Collins does offer that, and you can find that, uh, at our website, um, mtggrindcast.com, and you can find us on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. All right, peace out. Peace out.